Uh, I had just come back from Afghanistan and uh, I took a tour in a buddy's car and I said, man, I feel like I finally deserve something for the first time in my life. I'm always saving, saving, saving. And uh, so I went out and got a, uh, a new uh, luxury Acura car. It was at $25,000. And I essentially handed my wife off my old Toyota Camry. And uh, she wasn't too fond of that. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Alrighty, welcome back, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled Podcast, episode 213. This is Clark here with my co-host, Jace. Jace, what's going on, man? Thanksgiving is a few days away. You got your brisket ready to go? Yeah, I got the brisket ready to go, man. I can't wait. Got some good sports on here shortly. Save some for me, man, or mail it over. Dude, you should come visit for Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. Come play, come play some turkey bowl and would, it's it, we can go out to the lake too. We can still go out to the lake this time of year, man. The yeah, the one time a year that you play football. Yeah, play, I play the turkey bowl. Yeah, play the turkey bowl once a year. Kind of dust off the cleats, get out there, put my put my football gloves on. Nice, nice. Well, hey, let me just share a couple uh, reviews we got on iTunes this week. So thanks to those who listen and share reviews. This one's from Casey Watt. He says inspiring and informative. Such an intriguing podcast that either provides epiphanies or tasks to work on. There are different and many ways to reach millionaire status, and this podcast showcases examples from real people. Pick one. And then we got one from Timothy from Alabama. He says, I've really enjoyed listening to this podcast. It has provided great insight into a wide variety of folks who have achieved financial success. It has opened up my own perspective on how many different approaches are out there to take on my journey of financial freedom and success. Thanks for putting this together. So thanks to those who are listening and leaving reviews. We appreciate that. Just as a quick recap, last week we had Nick. He's an HR officer in National Guard, net worth of over a million dollars, about 65% in, in uh, real estate between his primary residence and a couple rentals. This week we have James, net worth over a million dollars, and he works in IT. He has retirement accounts, brokerage accounts, and then obviously some home equity and a little bit of cash. So thanks again to James and Nick for coming on. Uh, if you'd like to ask a, ask a millionaire a question or ask us a question, go to our website, Millionaire's unveiled.com hit ask a millionaire and you can either write something in or record via SpeakPipe, and we'll, we'll talk about that like we did last week in one of the intros so thanks again for tuning in with us everybody and without any further delay please welcome james to the show james you want to just give us a little about your background what you're up to now hey my name is james i'm th- uh, 35 years old and i've got a family with a four and a two-year-old uh, so i'm staying pretty busy at home in my uh, professional life, I am an IT product manager at a uh, Fortune 50 tech company. Sweet, man. And what's your net worth today? Uh, my net worth is $1.1 million. Awesome. No- newly minted millionaire not too long ago. So what's the, what's the breakup of the 1.1? Yeah, the, the 1.1 I calculated earlier today to, to verify, it's a 1% cash. So just over, just over 10K in uh, cash. And then 27% of that is in uh, 401k uh, through work. And I've been with the same employer since I started that 401k. So um, keeps it pretty easy to maintain. And then my wife is in uh, education. So she's got a 403 and 457 that uh, add up to 160k. So that's 15%. And then uh, we have a, f- a couple 529s for our kids. We're trying not to uh, over overfund those. 
So currently they're only sitting at 23,000, which is a uh, 2%. And then I dabbled a little bit in uh, individual stocks and I just have one uh, remaining with Alibaba. Um, so that represents 1% uh, net worth. And then I have a, a great HSA uh, through my employer, and that accounts for 3% of my net worth at $34,000. And uh, my wife, being in education, also has a uh, pension. Uh, she doesn't plan on staying at work until that pension fulfills, but she can withdraw it. So right now that's sitting at $40,000, which is 4%. And then uh, we have two Roth personal Roth IRAs that uh, add up to 8% of our net worth with uh, $87,000. And uh, we invest those in uh, REITs. And then uh, lastly, the uh, our taxable brokerage through Vanguard is at uh, $439,000, which is uh, 40% of our net worth. Wow. So you got things spread out pretty evenly. Where do you invest most of those retirement accounts and, and your brokerages? Is it stocks? Or, or I guess you only mentioned you had one one individual stock, but is it mutual funds or or index funds or bonds? Or what's the makeup there? Yeah, everything everything besides the uh, uh, Alibaba is all passive index funds, uh, low cost. Um, they're all with either Vanguard or Fidelity. And has it always been like that as you've started to build this net worth? <laughs> no, uh, no, I had a very different strategy. Uh, so I took quite a bit of business classes in my undergrad and, you know, I started studying individual stocks and, uh, you know, similar to Warren Buffett, I tried to stick with what I knew. So I knew that I was investing a lot of my personal time in looking at technology companies. So when I finished my undergrad, I really started looking at the Apples and Googles of the world. And uh, I was a fairly early investor in Tesla back in 2013. <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you about that in a second, but it didn't pan out too well in retrospect. <laughs> and I was also a psychological investor. So my undergrad in, at uh, University of Michigan was in psychology. And I really saw a lot of these ups and downs were the result of emotions and psychology uh, more than anything. Um, so over those first few years of investing, I looked at uh, emotional reactions from investors. For example, um, back in 2010, uh, Toyota had an incident with brakes, with a brake recall, and um, it really pulled back on the on the stock numbers. And I kind of looked at that as like a quick win opportunity. Um, there was a little bit of an uh, oil issue with a oil leak in the same year um, that I tried to get into. Uh, so really, I was playing individual stocks, but I kind of felt like I was at a at a Las Vegas casino, and I got a few quick wins and said, "Hey, this feels good." But for some reason, at the foundation, I just feel uneasy. And what's interesting at the time, uh, this was back in 2010 to 12 ish. I said, "Is there any kind of way that I can invest in more than one company?" Because I don't feel like I have enough time to run all the fundamentals and, and do the actual technical analysis behind these. And um, I didn't know of the idea or the concept of index funds. And uh, so uh, later on, I at least found out about ETFs. And I said, okay, well, this at least lets me get into an industry. And so, you know, I took some hypotheses about which industries might uh, excel, like clean energy. And uh, so I went into a couple ETFs as uh, my first step in my evolution. And um, then kind of rode that out for a while. And uh, the tech stocks kept going up. So I held on to those um, through 2017. 
And then um, my brother, who is a year older in 2018, he uh, introduced me to a couple of podcasts about personal finance and early retirement. And the mantra there was really focused on uh, low-cost passive index funds. And so he essentially gave me all these books, articles, all these forums and blogs, and essentially sold me on the idea of getting rid of all my uh, individual stocks. So in uh, 2018, I sold off uh, all my all my individual stocks and moved into uh, index funds. And uh, at the same time, I really uh, shifted my whole strategy um, to maximizing my tax advantaged accounts. Interesting, and that's what you're. you're gonna, I'm assuming that's what you're going to go do on a go forward basis as well. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, and that was one of my mistakes uh, during. I was in the uh, Air Force for six years from 2007 to 2013, and uh, they have a, a TSP account, and I just never understood it, to be honest with you. Um, I knew that I needed to save up for grad school. Um, I wanted to do my MBA uh, four to six years uh, after being in the military and uh, wanted to separate. And I didn't really understand the, the value add of tax-advantaged accounts, to be honest with you, because I just knew that I needed to save up for tuition, or I thought I did at the time. And so I kept this huge safety net in uh, taxable brokerage um, so that I had the liquidity uh, available to me. And um, what I realized over time was just the ability to do tax-deferred savings is much larger than I ever imagined. And I only got introduced to that um, when my brother pushed me into that community in, in 2018. Interesting. And you have no real estate or, or, or equity in primary residence? No, um, but that's the reason I got into REITs um, because I wanted to be uh, somewhat diversified, at least in, in real estate. And that looked like the easiest, most passive way to handle that. One of the reasons I had never gotten into real estate was I didn't have a mentor the way that I had a mentor with uh, individual stocks and ETFs and eventually those um, index funds. Both my uh, brothers who are older and have kind of always set the benchmark for me. Uh, neither of them got into uh, real estate income. And so I never really kind of had someone to to follow the path of. And uh, again, that was one of the biggest mistakes now that I look at in retrospect because I was a young, single, 20-something-year-old living in San Antonio, and I had all the time in the world on my hands, kind of looking for a side hustle, and um, I was I had the flexibility coming out of uh, undergrad that I was willing to live with just about as many people as I could to save money, and so the whole idea of house hacking, I just w wasn't exposed to it from anyone. Uh, one of my buddies was doing it, but he lived with his grandparents. He lived with a set of grandparents, and it almost felt like he was... Uh, almost like taking care of them in, in an odd way. So it didn't appeal to me. And so I didn't have anyone to emulate myself from. As I got more entrenched in the communities, learned about um, podcasts like um, like Bigger Pockets, then I started to realize how easily accessible this information has become. And so what I want to do in the future is uh, start to delve more into uh, real estate properties. And uh, right now, it's a little hard trying to uh, get enough information to, to find a good value on a property. Uh, where I live, the 1% the rule just doesn't seem to follow. And uh, I want to be in an area where I feel like I have a little bit of uh, inside insider advantage. And so um, I've got my eyes open a lot more than before, but I just haven't made that move yet. So do you rent then, James? No, uh, we own. And that was more a stability move than uh, anything else. Uh, over my first 30 years, I moved 30 times. 
And that was uh, mostly in the state of Michigan. I'm a lot back and forth. But once I got into the Air Force, wow. I moved. Yeah, I moved another uh, six or so times across uh, across Texas, Colorado, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida. I did a tour in Afghanistan and then um, eventually came back to Austin for uh, grad school and then uh, settled down here in the uh, in the Austin area. So it was a it was a lot of moves. And we decided to uh, build our uh, dream home at that point after floating across apartments. So it's not like it was breaking the bank during all those years. We were in in low cost apartments. Uh, We never lived in the downtown ritzy areas. So from that vantage point, it helped us save money, but not to the point of house hacking or um, even investing in real estate. Um, Obviously, if you know anything about, you know, the Austin real estate market, if we had bought a property even and, and turned it into a real estate um, property during grad school in 2013 to 15, that was probably close to doubled in, in value since then. And when did you buy it? Just more recently? Yeah, that was in uh, 2015. So we're five years in and uh, we're choosing uh, we're choosing to go with the math over the psychology on this one. We have a, a 2.75% uh, 30-year fixed uh, loan. And with by using a VA loan, we were able to only uh, have to uh, submit five percent for our down payment, and we had we had the choice to go more obviously and traditional being twenty percent. But at a uh, in our initial loan, it was three point six two five. But even at that point, it didn't seem like it made financial sense to put anything more than five percent in. Gotcha. So let's back it up, James, a little bit here, and then we'll come back to the net worth and allocation a little bit and some of the financial decisions. But going back to when you joined the Air Force, how old were you and how come you decided to do that? Just curious to hear about your story here. Yeah, that um, that goes back a little bit uh, further back in my roots. And uh, I, I grew up pretty low socioeconomic. And uh, after my parents, I'd say we were lower middle class. And then uh, after my parents divorced, it went quite a bit below that when I was uh, six years old. So I was lived in a single wide mobile home and um, we went to the food banks and we were able to go to private school, which was, you know, blessing, a true blessing because they gave us a free tuition because of our situation. And they essentially told us, hey, um, as long as you continue to uh, stay on the A honor roll and get good grades, you know, we're going to we're going to continue to help help out here. And so um, I definitely grew up with a, a scarcity mindset. And the message I always got from my parents was there wasn't going to be anything for me uh, once I got to my undergrad year. So once I hit 18, uh, not only was I out of the house, but there wasn't going to be anything ready for me for for, uh, undergrad. And so my two older brothers, uh, being eight and one year older than me, they, um, they went to the same university as me. And um, they took a different route by taking out a lot of student loans. And they just kind of accepted that's what life is, is a bunch of student loans. And then we'll go get a decent income and a, and a good job and then and then pay them off. It, it just seemed too scary for me to do that right off the onset. And so it was kind of a crazy coincidence that I went and visited the oldest brother uh, once he got his first job out in San Diego. And all his roommates were Marines. And so I went out to the uh, Marine base with them and went and got some food and went golfing. And I had a lot of military in my family, but they never sold me on the military or do anything about it. 
but it, uh, once I had stepped foot on a military base and, uh, he was an officer at the time and he was a, a captain and he sold me on all this good stuff and said, this might be a really great way for you to go. You can, you know, instead of going enlisted, you could go in as an officer. You could still go to your dream school. Um, not only can you go, they'll, they'll pay for the whole thing for you. And, that's really when I just put my uh, foot on the gas and said, yeah, I've got to do whatever it takes to make this happen. And uh, so every day that summer, I went and worked out and got ready for the physical training test. And I was going to I was going to be a Marine. And then all my mil- military family, cousins, aunts, uncles, they said, stop, what are you doing? And uh, I said, well, what do you mean? I'm you know, getting ready to go to the Marines. And they said, no, 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 no. We know you. We know your interests. You know, let's step back and, and get you into the Air Force route. And I said, OK, well, that's cool. I'll, I'll apply to both and see what happens. And uh, thankfully, I got uh, ROTC full ride scholarships for both uh, Naval wow. ROTC, which includes Marines, as well as Air Force. Um, so at that point, I uh, kind of got to pick my path and said, all right, let's uh, let's do this with the Air Force. Wow. Good for you. So they fully paid undergrad. And then what was the, what's the commitment after that? Yeah, it's a it's a really great deal. So it was initially a four year commitment, and not only did it include 100 percent of uh, in state tuition, and um, by the way, I went to the most expensive public school in the country, so they are willing to cover up to whatever the uh, whatever the full asking amount is. But additionally, they provide a housing allowance and they um, provide a stipend for books each semester. Um, so really, it uh, it does take care of you. And then at the same time, it um, keeps you grounded because it's like having a part-time job with all the physical training and leadership classes and leadership labs um, that you have to go to. What was your... uh, Just following graduation, what's your commitment back to the Air Force? Oh, yeah. And so it was four years. And then in a a very uh, great strike of luck, George Bush, uh, right before he left office, he signed the um, 9-11 GI Bill. And what that said was that anyone that had participated um, post 9-11 in the military uh, was eligible for this new 9-11 bill. Now, I wasn't initially eligible for the normal uh, Montgomery GI Bill because I already got undergrad paid for. But what was great about this new program was that if you did any time post your commitment, your four-year commitment, then they would also pay for grad school. So it's, um, it's prorated. And ultimately, I chose to do two years after my initial commitment, so six years total, and that covered 80% of my tuition. And then if I had stayed one more year, they would have covered the full 100% of my uh, MBA tuition. And uh, the only reason I Whatever you wanted to do and wherever you wanted to go. Uh, public school, yes, they cover the uh, most expensive in-state public school. So for me, that was at University of Texas. And uh, with private school, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit lower of a limit, but a lot of private schools have a program called a yellow ribbon in which they'll uh, match the uh, government contributions. And it makes it a little bit easier if you want to go into one of those top tier, um, more expensive private schools. And um, the the only reason I didn't uh, stay that seventh year uh, to get 100% was simply because they told me that if I stayed that seventh year, uh, they would move me again from Colorado to somewhere else. And uh, I just didn't want to take on another move. Right. So you did six years in the Air Force. Did, Did they pay you at all for those six years and how much? Yeah, they uh, they definitely do, and it's it's all publicly available information. If you look at the uh, the military pay charts, um, I think a lot of people have haven't 
ill-perceived conception of how much um, military earns because they don't take into consideration that uh, base pay and monthly stipends are all tax-free. Um, when I ran the numbers um, back in 2007, I felt like I was making roughly $50,000 a year. But as a lieutenant and then a young captain, it really um, exponentially rises in those first uh, eight to 10 years, uh, your, your pay scale. And so in my sixth year, um, I calculated it as being somewhere between one hundred and one hundred five thousand dollars, if I were working on the outside in the in the private sector, would be equivalent to. Let's take a quick break. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check them out at BetterHelp.com/unveiled. One way to think about therapy is through a bunch of analogies. We get our cars tuned up to prevent bigger issues down the road. We get annual checkups and go to the gym to maintain physical wellness and prevent injury and disease. We do chores regularly, well, some of us, to avoid a giant mess of the house and roaches. Going to therapy is like all of these. It's routine maintenance for your mental and emotional wellness to prevent bigger issues down the road. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Why invest in everything else and not your mind? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And Millionaires Unveiled listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash unveiled. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash unveiled. So one thing I, I want to return to that you mentioned in your allocation was the, the 10K in cash. Is that... Just basically to, to to pay your monthly living expenses, and you look at that brokerage account as more of you know if I need to tap into it as an emergency fund, I can. Or or how do you go about thinking about you know keeping such a sh- small amount in cash? Yeah, um, I used to keep a lot more. I used to be around forty forty five thousand dollars, and it was for the reason you described. Um, people had always told me, "Hey, you need six months, at least three months of emergency savings um, from your expenses," but. I listened to a couple of podcasts and they said, you know, what's the point of an emergency savings? And they said, how truly liquid does it need to be? And I knew that because I was saving up for grad school and had built up that big pool in my taxable brokerage, I had liquid money. It wasn't, it wasn't sitting in a retirement account that was much harder to access. So they said, do you really even need an emergency savings or do you just need, as you said, a revolving account for expenses? And um, that's how I looked at it. Um, I have a pretty standard W-2 job. I know what my paycheck is going to be next month and the month after that. Um, so if I just look at what my average credit card bill is per month, um, plus rent and, and whatnot, um, I can actually keep a lot lower than 12500 That's a little high for me right now. But uh, I plan on putting a little bit of that back into our Roth IRAs for 2021 calendar year. But for most of the last two years, I actually kept the cash around $4,000. Interesting. So you bring up a good point. How does James go about allocating each one of his dollars? Let's just say, hey, I'm going to make you know a, a dollar today or 10000 or whatever you want to do in a, in a given month or, or even you know annualize it. How do you go about your investing strategy? Where do the dollars go first as it relates to your retirement accounts, brokerage accounts, HSA, 529s? How do you go about allocating everything? Yeah, um, as I call it, the order of operations for my funding buckets. Uh, so I think it's going to change in the future, like I alluded to earlier. Um, I would like to start thinking about how much to put on the side for a real estate opportunity. and um, But up until now, it's been 
fairly straightforward. Uh, the HSA is, um, I guess I should say, the 401k match is the first bucket for me. And the reason is because I have a 6% employer match. And so that's free money. And then the next account is the HSA. There's a great article by Mad Scientist um, where HSA is described as triple tax advantage and that there's no tax uh, going in, no tax going out, and no tax for all the increases along the way. And so that really sold me on HSA. And um, the reason that I try to maximize that additionally is because um, you're able to uh, take all your medical expenses, um, store those receipts for as long as you want, uh, assuming that the the tax law doesn't change and then reimburse yourself, you know, decades down the road. So every year I've been maxing that out and then whatever medical bills I get, I've been uh, paying out of pocket. And then the next account was my 401k. And that was, that was sort of my current employer. And it just, it was always the easiest thing to go to next and said, Hey, I've got some really low cost, um, good index funds through Fidelity. So let me go max, max that out. And then um, when we started learning about these different tax advantaged accounts, uh, I looked. I knew that my wife had a pension available, but I didn't really know what a 403 or a 457 was until an episode of a podcast with a millionaire educator. And he started talking about the value props behind the 403 and 457. And, you know, I, my wife and I were on a road trip and we were listening to it and said, oh, my gosh, what have we been doing? And uh, my brother who uh, I mentioned earlier was just a couple uh, about a couple months ahead of us. And his wife was also a teacher and he said, this is great. My wife, her paycheck is $10. I said, what do you mean her paycheck is $10 and why are you happy about that? And uh, he sent, he sent me a copy of her pay stub and just showed all of those tax advantage deductions that she had. And between Having a you know fairly low educator salary minus the 403 max out minus the 457 max out, he said, uh, James, you've really got a situation here that you can I don't want to say exploit because exploit sounds like a bad thing, but to take advantage of because you're a high income earner, she's a low income earner, but she has these uh, special uh, accounts at her disposal with the 403 457. You need to get in there, and so I quickly followed suit and try to maximize those as much as possible. And um, I got about one, one and a half accounts uh, maxed out. And then I was able to get some uh, pay increases through work. And then for the uh, 2020 calendar year, actually 2019 calendar year, uh, we, was the first year that we could max that out. Did it again in 2020. Um, I think she had somewhere around like $5,000 of taxable income at the end of the year. Um, so it was a pretty awesome situation to be in. Uh, so that was that was the um, uh, 401k match, HSA, 401, 403, 457. And then um, this last year, we still had some left over after that. So that's when we dipped into the 529s and um, we put 8,000 uh, per child there this last year. And uh, you can go up to 14,000 per year per kid. And uh, so we might take that a little bit higher next year. But what we're striving for is to hit about 50% of their uh, estimated expenses. And the reason for that is because so much is going to change in the uh, educational sector uh, by the time that they get there, uh, get to college in 15 years. And uh, I just don't want to uh, overinvest or overfund those accounts if uh, something changes in the uh, whole education paradigm. 
Yeah, you bring up a, a really interesting point as, as it relates to those those five twenty nines going forward. What would you do with them? Let's just say if your kids chose an alternative route, or or have you thought through that? What what might happen? You know, as education changes, and 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 basically, you know, do you continue to? I mean, at this point, right? You've you've allocated you know x amount of dollars in there. How do you go about thinking about that? You know, obviously you've kind of said, hey, maybe we'll tone this down or shut this off. But how do you go about thinking about that, you know, for the future for them and and, and what are my potential financial situation with those accounts? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the last couple of years I hadn't invested for the 529 because I was scared of that 10%, the 10% fee that they charge if you withdraw it for non-educational expenses. Um, but then I went and did a little bit of research and, and saw, tried to find why other people were still continuing to invest in 529s. Well, some people are doing it because they live in states where there's a tax advantage for income tax. But being in Texas, I don't get that advantage. But some other points that were brought up are that education has a fairly loose definition. So it might not be your traditional four-year school, but it could still be a trade school. So that's one way um, it could potentially go. Uh, Second is that it doesn't necessarily have to go to your kids. You can reassign it to your grandkids, or you can even assign it to your spouse if they decide to go back to school. Or even if you both want to go back to um, school, you and your you and your partner, and uh, do something you know really off the cuff like a culinary institute. Uh, there are so many different ways to apply these funds. And uh, at the end of the day, the worst case scenario is that uh, you do ultimately pay a 10% ten percent fee and, and just withdraw it for personal use. But if you're in that situation and, and you don't have anything else to use it on, and um, by that point, you know, I, I should be well past my fine number, then, you know, it's, it's not going to make or break my whole situation. So I just saw that there were enough outs, as I would describe it, are there enough outs that I could use it in other places that wasn't too concerned. Yeah, totally. So you bring up the, the your fine number. One question we, we like to ask our millionaires is, is where do you go? I mean, what does the future hold? Are you trying to get to a certain net worth or is it passive income? Or how do you go about thinking about what that fine number looks like and, and what your lifestyle ch- looks like or changes over time here as, as you continue to grow your wealth? Yeah, uh, I'd say the biggest thing I'm afraid of is lifestyle creep. Because right now, looking in the forefront, it looks like an easy path. Right now, my number looks like three million investments, but three million investments minus three hundred thousand dollars my home payoff by the time I expect to be five, um, minus one hundred k per child for education. So that would put me at two point five million in investments. With a four percent safe withdrawal rate, um, gives me a hundred thousand dollars in uh, annual expenses. Um, I know a huge unknown and something that hasn't been solved for within the the fire community is uh, healthcare costs. So I'm trying to be really conservative about how much those might go up along with education. Those are the two categories that have the highest inflation rates in our country. So um, I do want to be cognizant of that. But assuming that our home is paid off and that we're uh, close to, if not empty nested by that point, uh, we have such low annual, we would have such low annual expenses by then that $100,000 would be way more than uh, we need in any any given year. But I need to uh, loosen up a little bit from where I have been. Uh, I don't want to spend hours saving $10 on an airplane ticket uh, I don't want to go fish for coupons every time we're trying to decide where to go to dinner. But I think $100,000 would um, more than suffice to get a golf membership and do the other things I want to do. Um, because 
I just don't enjoy some of those things that other people consider more extravagant. So how much do you spend a year now? Uh, right now, it's actually $8,000 per year, which uh, might sound like a lot. Um, that's looking at $96,000 in expenses per year. Eight dollars a month. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's a lot more than probably most people are used to spending. The reason it's so high, though, is um, because we did only put 5% down on our house. Um, and it was uh, initially a $430,000 house. Um, so our uh, mortgage was, you know, re- remaining still was around 400K. And then in Texas, although we don't have income tax, we have high property tax. Um, so our property tax is 3%. So that was $12,000 a year just in property tax. Um, so combine that together, you're looking at around $3,000 per month. We've got uh, two kids in childcare at uh, $1,000 a month. So that's another 2000 So now you're up to $5,000 just between those two things that are going to go away you know, once we're at that FI uh, stage. And then uh, looking at $250 a month for my wife's student loans. And uh, the good news there is that um, being in education, she's eligible for uh, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program the PSLF as they call it. So what that requires is uh, 10 years of public service, or I should say 120 qualifying payments. And so in the same way that um, I did public service to um, to get that scholarship and, and get grad school paid for, uh, she saw that 10-year commitment to public service being her way to get out of uh, education loans. Uh, when she finished uh, undergrad and her uh, grad school, she was at $75,000 with student loans, and she's currently at $57,000 in student loans. So in five short months from now, that whole balance will be uh, forgiven. So that'll not only will that $57,000 be forgiven, um, but that'll also free up another $250 in expenses per month. Wow. Wow. And then uh, kind of the last big ticket item in those expenses is uh, just over $600 in a car payment per month. And, uh, I can imagine people uh, reacting to this podcast saying, oh my God, how they spend that much. But um, it was really uh, straightforward, actually. So I bought a uh, 2003 Toyota Camry in 2007, the prototypical three-year used car at $10,000, and it was the perfect thing for me and stayed stable. Well, my wife bought a Lemon and uh, a little later down the road, and essentially we just had to unload it and try to figure uh, figure out a new way to go. And uh, I had just come back from Afghanistan, and I took a tour in a buddy's car, and I said, man, I feel like I finally deserve something for the first time in my life. I'm always saving, saving, saving. And uh, so I went out and got a, uh, a new uh, luxury Acura car. It was at $25,000. And I essentially handed my wife off my old Toyota Camry. And uh, she wasn't too fond of that. <laughs> 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 oh, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it had a hundred thousand miles on it. I said, "No, this this thing is good. I've been taking care of it. It's good for at least another hundred, hundred fifty thousand dollars more." I'm like, you know, it's not my fault that you bought the lemon. Um, so you know, you're just gonna have to suck it up. Well, once we had kids, it was a little harder to harder to keep that story. And uh, she moved so many times for me and, and for my uh, career uh, to advance, and so. Uh, what we agreed on was getting a brand new uh, Honda Pilot. It was 2017 at the time. And uh, so it was a five-year loan. And the reason that we still owe on it 
uh, $14,000 is because we were able to get it at a 0.9% uh, interest rate. So similar to the house, there was no reason to pay that off early. And uh, the agreement we made, we'll see if she holds to it, was that she would keep that vehicle for 20 years. So even though it was new, we did look at used Honda Pilots a few years old. But when we did the math, it really was not that different. Hondas and Toyotas uh, hold their residual value really well. And so when we compared the three-year model to, to the brand new, it was you know almost identical. Um, and if you take into consideration maintenance fees and whatnot, um, it was almost more advantageous if you um, do good, good negotiation on uh, new vehicles to uh, to go that route. Um, so we went in December when they were doing their uh, end of year and trying to clear inventory, and we realized that they have five trim levels, and one of the trim levels was um, grossly overbought by a lot of the local dealers, and they were trying to unload them. And so it was able to help us get uh, six or seven thousand dollars below uh, sticker price. And uh, so net net, uh, hopefully she'll have that car for seventeen more years. And uh, <laughs> and that's that. <laughs> seventeen more years, nice. nice. Well, thanks, Craig, for sharing. Let me just jump into some rapid fire questions here, and, and then we'll wrap it up. So, what's been the most expensive pair of pants you've ever purchased? Pair of pants. I'm gonna go forty dollars. Uh, I don't know if it was a, a pair of khakis or a pair of jeans, but uh, that forty-five dollars is kind of my threshold. Okay. What about the most expensive meal out? Yeah, that was just uh, last month when we hit a million dollars. So it was celebratory not only for that, but uh, oh, nice. also it was our ten-year uh, anniversary, and in the same week, so we uh, went out to Brazilian steakhouse, and uh, that was one hundred and forty. And uh, we try to do Brazilian steakhouse about once every two years, and uh, for key events. Yeah. How old were you when you became a millionaire? Thirty-five. 35. Okay. Awesome. Uh, what items or experiences are worth spending more money on to you? Oh, that's, that's a, that's a hard one. My wife would probably say I don't want to spend on anything for anyone. I would say, uh, visiting family and friends has been pretty worthwhile. Um, I'm always willing to throw in to try to go to San Jose or back to Michigan to visit, uh, close friends and family. And, and those are some of my greatest memories. Uh, once every few years, uh, a big trip outside the US uh, and does really well. Um, I've really liked the exposure to Europe and other places. Okay. Have you ever used a financial advisor? I have not. Like I said, I dabbled in the uh, individual stocks and kind of felt like I was getting a little lucky. And the next step was um, the passive index funds and just let it ride. Yeah. As much as you're comfortable sharing here, what's been your range of annual household income since you've been working? So... um, with the military, like I said, I started around $50,000 and I'm currently at a total compensation of $205,000 now. And then uh, my wife is at $65,000. Uh, so combined um, pre-tax, we're at $270,000. But because we uh, in, are able to invest in so many of those uh, tax-managed accounts, um, we're able to keep quite a bit of that, thankfully. Good for you guys, man. You're crushing it. Way to go. Yeah, thank you. Any specific financial goal, either net worth or passive income? So I've always tried to play my life one goal at a time. Uh, it was getting into my dream college, thinking in my dream MBA program and getting the ROTC scholarship. So um, really, my next dream is just to hit my basic uh, fine number of uh, $3 million in investments. And uh, I hope to do that in uh, assuming that the market stays uh, healthy. I don't expect as good of returns, obviously. Um, but hopefully in eight years, we can hit the fine number. 
Um, but I think there is going to be a little bit of lifestyle creep. And uh, I think I will want to adjust my number a little bit. Um, people have tried to set the expectation that once my kids are a little older and they're in high school, A, they're not going to want to hang out with me <laughs> nearly as often as they do right now. And B, it's a little bit harder to live nomadically or, or live more of a freestyle life uh, when you've got kids still in school that uh, need to finish up. Um, so my wife always warns me that uh, I'm a workaholic and I'll continue to want to be at least until they empty nest. Um, so <laughs> if, uh, if that happens, I project that we should be able to get up to 6 million or so. Um, we're kind of in um, inertia mode at this point. Uh, all those numbers assume that, for example, I never get promoted again or get another um, income raise or anything like that. So if any of those things uh, happen, it'll be icing on on the cake. But even without all that, just using the rules 72, we, we should be sitting at least at 5 million by the time we call it quits. Yeah, good for you. So just in closing here, what's your final mistake, any mistakes you've made or your final advice to somebody if if they're you, maybe they're in the military, maybe they're not, if they're just starting out, just saving, maybe they're in their MBA program, what would be your final words of advice to them? Oh, I made so many, <laughs> I made so many mistakes along the way. I mean, there were good things I did. You know, for example, in Afghanistan, I was able to get somewhere around a 99% savings rate um, just by moving out of my house and um, unloading my car and everything while I was deployed. But on the, on the reverse side, uh, I didn't invest in my TSP the entire time I was in the military because I thought it was only a value prop if they did a match. And they did up to a 2% match for civilians. So missing out on uh, TSP was a big thing. Uh, number two is that uh, I had some huge gains from those tech companies in the early uh, 2010s. And uh, I felt overwhelmed with the incoming tax burden. So I actually sold off like pretty much all of my capital gains in a year um, because uh, I thought my income would be lower going into grad school. And ultimately, I uh, think I ended up paying some kind of penalty fee for having too much income that year. And um, I could have easily deferred and, and held on to that stock. Something else that uh, happened was just not uh, hacking uh, real estate at any point or getting into real estate during all those years. And then uh, a lot of a couple speculative bets. So with the companies that I knew a little bit about uh, within the technology sector, I actually did quite well on those picks. But there were some pure speculative bets that I did on uh, crypto in 2018. It uh, I bought it $12,000 and made a quick 50% return within a few weeks and said, man, life is great. And then it shot all the way down to $3,000. And my brother convinced me I need to get back to get into index funds. So I took a 75% loss. On another note, I um, was told to get into precious metals and I should try to diversify. And I said, hey, this palladium, I think it's going to get a lot more culturally popular. And hey, this thing has so many up, ups and downs swings. Let me just ride it for one more swing and then take a 25% gain. And it turns out at the point that I bought, they actually went bankrupt. <laughs> the company went bankrupt. And oh, um, so I lost around 90% of that investment, which was $15,000. And I've kind of always said up to $15,000 was kind of play money. And and so when I invested in crypto, I said the same thing. Hey, if I lose all this, it's I'm not going to be heartbroken or anything. But the two bets that I made that were purely speculative uh, really blew up in my face. <laughs> what was the, What's the crypto out now? It hasn't gone up? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, it has. Uh, after my brother convinced me to get out, and that was uh, another mistake. Was uh, during my grad school, I invested in Tesla. At, this was before the split. I bought at a hundred dollars a share, and I sold in two thousand eighteen at three hundred forty three dollars a share. So I think it was what a four to one split or five to one split, and uh, it was at like seven hundred high seven hundreds uh, per share. So seven times uh, four twenty. That's about $3,000 a share equivalent. So, yeah, I could have uh, had another 10x growth in the uh, in the last two years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. But could have, should have, would have. Um, yeah. On the yeah. flip side of that, in March when we had the 30% dip in the, in the whole market, I was able to sleep fine. And all my coworkers who I, I do financial classes at work um, for all my coworkers on retiring early. And they said, Craig, what do I do? What do I do? And I said, I don't know. I'm sleeping fine. I'm in index funds. I'm not in individual uh, stock picking anymore. And so for me, it's uh, easy to sleep at night knowing that I'm not um, making speculative bets. And uh, in a random walk down Wall Street, they talk about the greater fool phenomenon and that someone's always going to pay more than, than you're willing to get in. And just being out of that whole game just made it a lot easier to, to ride that dip and, and buy during the dip instead of, um, you know, get scared and worry each day what you're going to do. Yeah, totally. Well, thanks James for sharing so much. Thanks for being so open. Appreciate your candor. And obviously thanks for your service as well. So again, just to recap, it's James net worth of 1.1 million. Thanks again for coming on tonight. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, James. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.